And welcome to Long Hill Chapel. My name is Michael Hadi. I'm the lead pastor here at Long Hill. I'm so glad you've joined us. Some of you went out and bought a boat in anticipation of the rain we're supposed to get later. Nothing makes you feel more in the Christmas spirit than a good rainstorm that nearly washes everything. I'm joking. I would love some snow or something like that. But uh, we are here and it is a week from Christmas. How many of you are ready for Christmas? I'm ready for Christmas, but I'm not ready for Christmas. Do you understand the distinction? Like, I'm ready for Christmas. I'm all about, like, last night at 10 p.m., my wife was in the kitchen. I was outside putting more lights on the outside of our house because 3,100 is not enough. There's always a spot for more, and uh, I've become that dad in our neighborhood, but I I absolutely love the Christmas uh, season. One of the things that's so interesting about this season is that it's the one time of year you hear the same songs everywhere. Uh, you can go to the mall and you'll hear songs about Jesus, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, so the, the songs you hear in church and the songs you hear in other places, uh, they're exactly the same. When you go to Starbucks, they're selling some very hipster version of whatever the Christmas songs that we all know is at the checkout. So you get your latte, you get you know the download for that. And uh, for me, hearing certain songs or certain versions of them, they just take me back somewhere. And maybe that's, that's the case for you too. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my Christmas light fixation is not a new thing. Uh, It's been a long-standing thing. When I was about seven years old, I started decorating my room for Christmas. And it started out with just like, you know, one set of 35 lights. And it got up to, I had a hundred, like it took like several circuits of power to power my room. Uh, And you could see it from space. But one of the things that I would do is I had my little cassette player, kid cassette player thing, and I had dubbed a tape of the Boston Pops Orchestra, and they had, uh, many years ago, a record that had all their arrangements of the Christmas songs on them, and I would just run that on repeat over and over again, and so whenever I hear Joy to the World by them, it just takes me back to uh, that time when I was just a a little kid, and the excitement and the anticipation that I definitely had then and still have now uh, for the season. So they're, they're a huge way that we we connect uh, with the season, but these next few weeks, these next couple weeks, and then the week after Christmas, we're going to do something really innovative. We're going to read the Christmas story straight through. We're going to go right from the beginning of, mostly the beginning of it, uh, to the very end of it. And we're going to, as we do that, we're going to discover something that I kind of had pieced together finally as I read the whole thing, is that the Christmas story, like our Christmas experience, is marked by songs. There's actually four of them in in the uh, gospel account that the writer Luke gives us, one of the places where we read that story very often. And they mark that experience the first time that we came to the events of the birth of Jesus. Just like for us, uh, we have maybe the millionth time, or in my case, the 47th time we come to this very familiar holiday. Uh, It is something that defines the season, and it defines it in a different way than we might think. Because if we're all honest with each other, and we're trying to be honest here because we're in church, 
Uh, Christmas is a time where we feel a whole mix of things. We feel a mix of emotions. This year, you know, just speaking for myself, uh, having come off the, the loss of my father the past few weeks and now entering into Christmas, there's a part of me uh, that can't wait. I can't wait to turn into the hope of this season, but I'm also very aware of what I've just experienced. And some of you have your own version of that. You know, when you come to Christmas, it reminds you of how things aren't. Or it reminds you of how you wish that they were. Or it reminds you of how they used to be. And so it's a mixed experience that we all have, even as we light the candles and we sing the songs. And the good news, friends, is that the original Christmas story and even the original Christmas songs are that same mixed bag of experiences. But the thing I do believe 100% is that this season is an invitation to hope. I believe it's an invitation for each of us, for where I am, for where you are, for where each one of us truly is. It's an invitation in the direction of hope. Because some of us in a season like this, we look around and we say, you know what, I'm going to put on this, the happy face, and I'm going to put the Santa hat on, and I'm going to put a smile on, but deep down inside there's something else that I'm feeling. But the good news of Christmas is this isn't just hope, like wishful thinking hope, or I remember back then when it was better hope, or I hope it gets better up there in the future. It's a hope that you can actually build your life on, and that's what Jesus offers us at Christmas. You know, one of the things I think we miss when we look at the Christmas story is that it's actually not one story. It's literally, it's two stories that intertwine and then a third story that shows up a little bit later. There's the familiar story that most of us know of Jesus and his parents, Mary and Joseph. You know, we have a nativity scene in our house and we also have kittens this year. We got some kittens this year and it is still like there should be a, like I should be taking bets on who's going to win, nativity or the kittens because they, they definitely want to knock the thing over. But there's this familiar story with the characters, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and the angels and a whole lot of animals. But there's also this other story about another character named John the Baptist and his parents who are named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And the thing that's interesting about the intertwining of these stories is they couldn't be more different. The stories couldn't be more different from each other. You know, one of the stories is this payoff moment after a long time of waiting and hoping and praying. And the other story is fraught with uncertainty and difficulty and not knowing how it all fits together. And the surprising thing is the story we would think is the one is actually the other and vice versa. And so we're going to read, as I said, the whole Christmas story in the next few weeks, but we're going to begin reading today in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. And it goes like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, remember Elizabeth, we've got some, some character backstory here. Elizabeth is going to be the mother of John the Baptist. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, same angel, different person originally, but now Gabriel is coming to the familiar part that we know, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant 
of David. And so there's been this little uh, peek back. And for the sake of time, you know, we didn't go back and read the whole story of John the Baptist. But Elizabeth is his mother, and his father's a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. And these are just like these devout people who have been faithful. They followed God in a time where it was easy not to, and when a lot of the people around them were not. And they've been praying for a child for years and years and years. They've been praying for years and years that they would have this thing that would fulfill their greatest hope and their greatest joy. And they're both kind of old at this point. But God finally answers their prayer. Have you ever prayed for a long time for something to happen and it finally does? I have a couple of those times in my own life where, you know, I kept praying in a way because I knew I was supposed to, because it couldn't hurt to just keep going. But in my head, I'd kind of moved on a little bit. I'd said, you know what, God, it would be great if you did this thing, but I, it doesn't seem like you're going to actually do the thing. So I'm going to keep at this a little bit. But then God shows up and he just busts your cynicism and he actually gives you the thing that you've been praying for. And so there's these times along the way where you doubted or you were uncertain or you had questions or you didn't see how it was going to work. But then suddenly it pays off. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was for some circumstance that changed and it almost surprised you in the moment that it did, that it finally changed. And so you come into church in those moments, and it's easy to sing the songs. It's easy to pray the prayers. It's easy, you know, to post on your Facebook, your social media, just about the goodness of God, because you can see it, and you can touch it, and you can feel it. But right next to those things, there's another story, because for some of us, the story feels very different. Listen to the contrast of this payoff that Elizabeth is feeling, this realization of a long prayer that is finally going to be answered with a familiar story that we know. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, as would you be if an angel showed up. So you're going along, you know, you're, you're making your morning coffee and an angel shows up. Uh, you would be a little shook if that happened. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants. That's the whole line that goes back into Jewish history forever. His kingdom will never end. And you know what? Most of us could almost recite this. We're very familiar with these words. We hear them every Christmas. There's some portion of them that's on banners and greeting cards. You hear them in church. If you don't hear them in church, you know, you write an email and say, what happened? Where was the Christmas story in church this year? They've kind of romanticized them like some sort of Hallmark movie. Let me give you a little backstory 
to this appearance of the angel in the news that he gives Mary. Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And she, like anyone who is betrothed to be married, you're engaged. You have this picture of how you think that the future is going to play out. You think of all the firsts that you're going to experience together. You know, some of you, you remember dreaming those dreams. I remember, and I talk about this often, my wife, Grace, and I were married right here on this spot uh, 23 and a half years ago. As we came to that moment, we had this picture of what we thought the future was going to look like. Certainly, we didn't know the details. We knew that it might change, but it was hopeful. You enter into those moments with incredible hope. And the thing I want you to get about what happens in this story that we've idealized and we've romanticized is that the angel's announcement to Mary literally shatters every single one of those dreams. So the angel shows up and says these things, and it's easy for us to say, yay, what a great story. That's, that's amazing. What this literally looks like is the dismantling of everything that Mary had hoped for, because she's unmarried. And pregnancy out of wedlock, especially in this time, wasn't just a social question mark. It literally broke a whole bunch of religious laws and social norms. Under Jewish law, unfaithfulness and adultery wasn't just grounds for divorce. It was grounds for death. Only one thought could have filled Joseph's mind. You know, in the absence of anything that had happened, any kind of assault or any kind of violence that had happened, Mary had just committed a very, very serious offense. And this was one in the Old Testament that had a death sentence over it. At this time, the Roman Empire had come and they'd occupied the Jewish lands. And so that wasn't really happening in a literal sense anymore. But there was, you were pushed to the margins and to the edges of society. Have you ever had someone come to you, you know, and they tell you this thing that they did and you're like, what did you just do? What were you thinking? And you're saying, yeah, but it was an angel and it was by the Holy Spirit and it was God. At this point in the history of the Jewish people, in the account that we're reading, there had been no angels, no prophets, no words from the Lord for 400 years. Just to give you a sense of how long that is. That's much longer than this country has existed. This would be like the last person who spoke was William Shakespeare. Or the last person who said anything was Leonardo da Vinci. It's that far and that long ago. And it seems like God has been silent. And suddenly there's an angel. If someone came to you with that story, you'd be like, yeah, you know, great. Okay, tell me what really happened. Tell me the real story of what was going on. And your child is the Messiah? At this point, seriously, Messiah was mostly a legend that people told to each other to help themselves feel better about the difficult circumstances that they found themselves in. It was something that's like, yeah, that would be great if that happened, but I would not be planning on that happening. It's that kind of a story. There were a handful of people, mostly older people, in a couple weeks who were going to see one of these older people who were hanging on to this as a true thing that was going to happen. It was going to occur, but most people thought those folks were, you know, well-intentioned, but just a little bit off the rockers. 
You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, right. That, that, that would be great if that happened. But the reality is the story that Mary has is not a credible story. It's a story that literally means the end of the dreams that she has for her life. It's a story that means in any circumstance that she will be pushed to the margins of society. And we think about, you know, single parenthood in this time, and it's difficult, but it's possible for a woman at that time whose primary role was, uh, her primary value was in being able to be married. This was the end of any kind of a good life or any kind of a good existence. So as you might imagine, Mary has some questions and the story goes on in verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And it's interesting how often the Holy Spirit shows up in this story. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. And then he kind of peeks the curtain about the other story that's going on. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from, the, from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. If I was Mary, I'd be like, you know, can you hang around just a little bit? I've got some people you need to talk to. But then the angel left her. The angel drops this bomb and then leaves. And suddenly Mary is alone in her thoughts. This picture of what she thought life was going to be is utterly shattered. And she's left with a story that would be nearly unbelievable to most people. It seemed like a bad excuse or a bad cover-up. Now, I want to be clear, and I don't want to misread what's going on in the story here. Mary does something incredible. She receives and she accepts God's will for her life. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. But I don't imagine for a second that this was just like this placid, passive, I am the Lord's servant. That sounds great. Let's go. I imagine this is one of those things where there's struggle around it. Have you ever experienced, you know, God leading you in a direction? And you know he is, but there's a lot of struggle around it. It's something you really don't want to do. It's something that you see the difficulty of trying to do. You have a, a million and a half questions. You're stepping into God's will, but you're leaving behind your own dreams, your own picture of how life was going to be, your own way that you would want this to all work out. You know, and I think all of us in this room, and, and honestly, and even for the right intentions, we have this picture of God coming in and making our dreams come true. The right person. Some of you are praying for the right person right now. The right situation. For a circumstance to change. For the right provision. You know, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes we pray the prayer and God does the thing and we're like, yes, I can go sing the songs on Sunday because this is an easy one for me to hold on to. But I think very often the way God works in our lives is much more like the story of Mary. You know, he comes in and we have this picture of how we thought it was going to be. And what God begins to tell us, what God begins to say to us, the direction that we thought it was going to go is completely 
fragmented. It's completely shattered apart. This is hard for us to hear. And there's good news at the end, by the way, so I'm not just leading you down this, this depressing trail right now. Sometimes the price of admission to God's plan is our dreams. Sometimes the price of admission to what God wants to do is the thing that we want God to do for us. Sometimes the entry point into what God is up to is this thing that we had where we have to lay it down and say, you know, God, this is really close to my heart. This is really important to me. This is what I really want to happen, but I'm letting go of it and I'm trusting that where you're leading me, even if I can't figure out how it all fits together, is something that's better. Now, I want to be very, very clear about this. The good things that you want out of life, the passions, the desires, the hopes, even the dreams that are in your heart, I believe God put those things there. I do. There's some portions of Christianity and faith where we have this idea that, you know, this thing that we really love, we have to hand it over, you know, any, anything that's good in our life that would bring us joy, we just have to, we have to walk away from that and embrace a life of misery. I just don't see that in the character and the nature of God. I think he puts things in us that sometimes we hold on to too tightly and we get too clear or too specific a picture of how it's going to work. But I can tell you this, even when when we have to walk away from our dreams and follow God. He so often gives us back a different version of the thing that we wanted all along. Even when we turn away, when we lay our whatever it is down, so often he gives us back a different version of the thing that we wanted all along. There's something that he placed in our heart, and the problem is we can't see it unless we look backwards. We can't see it until we take the step. We can't see it until we get on the journey, and then we look back and say, oh, that thing that God put in me, that's why it was there. I thought it was for this, but it was for something else over here. Friends, I can just share in my own life how many times that has been the case where there's been something, I, there's a few stories that I won't take the time to share now where I've just said, okay, God, there's this thing I thought I really wanted, but it doesn't look like it's going to work. So, you know, I lay it down before you. And I can't tell you how many times he's led me on a path that I never would have expected. And I'm like, oh, that thing that you placed in my heart, that's how it connects to that bigger picture. But it's so easy, friends, for us to make our plans God and then miss God when he doesn't come and bless our idea of how we think he should operate. You know, some of you, this is going to get even more uncomfortable for a moment. There's this thing in your life that you've been trying to pray away. Like, you're like, God, take that away. God, I don't want to deal with that person anymore, that circumstance or that situation. You know, I'm done with New Jersey. Can we go somewhere warm? Because we go somewhere where the taxes are lower. Whatever it is. And we've been trying to pray it away. And sometimes the thing that you see as the obstacle is the very thing that God wants to use as a blessing in your life. Sometimes the thing that you're trying to get rid of, you're trying to like, get this thing out of here. What an, it's in the way. I don't want to do that. I want to go over here. It's the very thing that God wants 
to use. So maybe sometimes, and I'm just suggesting, we have this ability to try to use God to run from God. We have this ability to try to, you know, get rid of or pray away or move away from the thing that God actually wants to use. He wants to use in this significant way in our lives. And so this brings a hugely important question for all of us, and it's this. Can you trust that God's plan is good, even better, when the price tag is your plans? Can you trust holding on white-knuckle faith? I do not imagine Mary was like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Can you keep on trusting that God is at work and that he's faithful and that he has good plans for you and that those plans could even be better plans when the thing, the price of admission, the point of entry is leaving your version of those things behind? You know, as I said, this is less like just this monotone acceptance, this Christmas pageant answer. And it's a lot more like getting on that roller coaster ride you're half certain you shouldn't have gotten on. You know, when I was a kid, I, I took flying lessons, and so I'd fly these little single-engine planes, and, you know, my mother at that time was, was both supportive financially and just supportive of me doing this, but the last thing she wanted to do was get into the plane. It was a little tiny plane, you know, it just bounces around a lot, and there was this one day, and it's one of my great memories of my mom, where she decided to get in the back of the plane, probably against her better judgment with her 13-year-old son. Yeah, there was an instructor there, but we took off and we, you know, we landed on this grass strip some miles away and then we came back and it was a short trip. But it was just one of those things I know for her was probably one of the least comfortable things that she ever did. But what she did in that is she gave me a memory of her and her commitment to me that will never, ever leave me, even this many years later. When you follow God in this way, it's very much like that story. You're like, this doesn't seem like a good idea, but I trust that you're at work and I trust that you're at work and that you're going somewhere. And so I'm willing to get on the ride, holding on not to how I see this all working out because I'm not sure how it does, but because of who you are. Look what Mary does next though. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, again, is John the Baptist's mom, future. She's pregnant. She's in her old age. And this is like, this is the great story. This is the story where it all seems like all the pieces finally came together. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And here we go again. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Remember the contrast. The world around would have said anything but those words. They did not see Mary as blessed among anything. And they did not see the child that she was carrying as blessed among anything. This was a black mark. This was a social stigma. But here comes God. And God looks at what other people see one way and he pronounces blessing over that circumstance. But why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed, listen to this, that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. You know, I think 
as you read most people who comment on this particular story in this particular passage of scripture, they commentate that, you know, Mary went with to Elizabeth to share this great news. I think it's a whole lot more complicated than that. What do you do when you're wrestling with something complicated? I'll tell you what I do. I go try to find someone who might understand what I'm wrestling with. And so it says immediately, Mary says, oh my gosh, there's this thing that's coming into my life. I'm going to go talk to someone who might have some perspective that will help me as I journey through this. And think about who Elizabeth is. First of all, Elizabeth is a devout follower of God. She's a faithful follower of God. So she doesn't just go gossip to anybody or find someone on the street. She finds someone who's rooted and anchored in some way. But there's something else that Elizabeth was too, is Elizabeth to that point had been barren. And so in this culture and in this context, Elizabeth was on the outside. She would have been seen as less than. She would have been seen, you know, as not measuring up. Her primary purpose as a woman in that culture would have not been fulfilled. And so here's someone who's used to being on the outside, who's used to being on the edge of things. And now Mary is in the same spot She's on the outside of the culture. She's pregnant, apparently by anyone else who doesn't believe the story, out of wedlock, and on the edge of possibly losing everything. The other thing I think Mary probably was doing here is something we all do, is seeking confirmation. You know, did I really hear this right? Did I really understand what was going on? Was there, what, did the angel really say that? Did it really make sense? And the thing... I love about this is remember, Elizabeth is a devout follower of God. She knows the Jewish law just as much as anybody else does. And her response to Mary is not a response of judgment. It's not a response of judgment. She's filled with the Holy Spirit and she speaks life and blessing. Friends, when we as a church when we as individuals are filled with the Spirit of God, there is a certain kind of fruit that follows after that, and it is a fruit that brings life. It is a fruit that brings blessing. It is a fruit that brings flourishing to the world. And if we're not speaking with that voice, something is wrong. And I'm thankful here at Long Hill that the Spirit of God is at work over and over Again, in this story, as I said, the Holy Spirit keeps showing up. And every time the Holy Spirit shows up, the story gets turned upside down once again. And it brings life instead of death. And finally, at the end of this story, Mary responds, and she responds with our first Christmas song in this series, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth 
for about three months and then returned home. You know, that last phrase is important because Mary sticks around. She, this isn't like a weekend trip or, you know, a visit for a couple hours and then, then she goes back home. It's for a long time. Some of that was for the practical reasons and the practical implications of that. But I think it was also this, Mary needed someone in her life who could help guide her, mentor her, and position her for all that this new direction in her life would require. You know, they're related. There's this proximity of relationship. They're both sharing a common experience of pregnancy, and they're not doing it from the same vantage point. But there's this time of preparation before Mary steps into all that God has for her. It doesn't happen immediately. And when we do the Christmas pageant, it's like bang, 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 bang. It seems like it's a very short time. But there's this time of preparation. And as I was reading it, that last phrase stuck out to me. And and it it just brought something to mind that I think is important that I share with you. One of the reasons that we fall out of God's plan for our lives is because we underestimate the amount of time and preparation it will take for us to walk in it. One of the reasons that we fall off the road sometimes is there's not just the thing that God has called us to. There's what God has to do in us before we can walk on the path of what he's called us to. And so it takes time. And some of us, when we see this thing that just seems uncertain and difficult, and we're like, you know, we're like, okay, let's get it over with. And we try to jump into everything all at once. And we're just not ready to do that. Because that energy we get from movement seems to justify the risk that we're taking. But friends, God's calling of you is different than his preparation of you. God's calling on your life is different than his preparation of you. And some of you, you get to the point where you're like, yes, God is calling me in this direction. I'm going to take this step. I'm going to make the move. I'm going to step out in faith. But then the next thing God puts in front of you seems like it's just like it's off in left field and it seems frustrating and it doesn't seem like it fits into the direction. And once again, it's tempting for us to make our plans more important than God's plans. It may feel like it takes you away instead of towards. It may make you feel like things are not going to go in the direction that you thought that they were going to go. It's what actually gives us the ability to stay in the yes that we give to God. And finally, and I don't want to leave this out, there's the song, there's the thing that Mary sings for a long time. If you open your Bibles and you read this, it suddenly looks like song lyrics or poetry, and it's because it was. In the early church, this song was called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And it was a hymn that the early Christians would sing. And you look at the language of it, you can kind of see what's going on. It's the God who's the one who brings down the powerful and elevates the lowly. He's the one who performs mighty deeds. It's the God who's faithful over and over again. And the reason the early Christians sang this song is because they were like Mary. They were in this place where they were powerless where they were outnumbered, where they didn't see how it all worked out. And so they sang this song to remind them of what was true. Some of you all are football fans, and Pastor Andy uh, wrote in the notes, he said, don't forget to mention the Eagles fight song. 
And so here I am. Here's my call out to all you Eagles fans. But if you have a sports team, some of you have a song that you sing, and the Giants fans, I can see some of you are just looking at me with like daggers right now. Don't worry, I don't have a do- I'm a baseball guy. I don't have a dog in this fight whatsoever. But we sing these songs for our team to rally ourselves and to rally our team, but to remind us and to anchor us and to position us. And that's what Mary is doing as she's singing this song. It's a song that's rooted in the faithfulness of God, but it's a desperate song. It's a song that says, God, the odds in front of me are long. The path in front of me is difficult. I don't know all of the answers and I don't know how it all works, but I trust in who you are. Mary is saying, I have confidence because I know who you are and I know the kind of people that you associate yourself with. I don't have confidence in my circumstances necessarily, I don't even necessarily have confidence in myself, but I have confidence in you. And you may be in a point today where the place that God is calling you into, the step that he's asking you to take, even perhaps the feelings, the experiences the mindset that you're coming into this Christmas season with. You may need to take the step of reminding yourself of who God is. So Mary, I think, more than we can even read in our romanticized Hallmark Christmas pageant version of this text, she's hesitant, she's unsure, she seeks wise counsel, but then she roots herself in the narrative of God's faithfulness. It's intentional. She may not always feel it, but she does it anyway. And you can too. And so can I. You can be calm in the midst of chaos. You can be uncertain and hopeful. We say it again. Uncertain and hopeful. You can say, I don't know how it all works, but I have hope in who God is. You can feel all of the things that you're feeling, not just push them down below the surface and still also be faithful. And I want to remind you that wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing right now, whatever your feelings are, whatever you go out these doors back into, God is already there. He's already there. He's going ahead of you and he walks with you. And maybe this is your story today. Maybe this is your song. This Christmas, we will sing lots of songs. We'll sing lots of other songs. But today, the God who is faithful and who has called you and will be faithful to you has invited you to sing this one. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here. We recognize the ways that you're at work. We see it in the story here. We see it in the cracks and in the margins. We see it in the response that you bring where you bring life and not death. But you're at work in our hearts and some of us feel that today and some of us are not so sure. You know, we've seen a lot of things this year. 
We've looked around the world and we see all of the things going on in the world. And it's easy for to make us lose hope. But hope was never about the circumstances. Hope is about a person. A person is Jesus. And so I pray today for us, for each of us, you would meet us where we're at, not with condemnation, but with invitation to pick up, to take your hand, to walk with you again. They realize that the story of Christmas is not this tightly wrapped package where all seems joy and light and easy. It's complicated. And our stories are complicated. So today we hold on to you. We pray that you'd meet us right where we're at with yourself, with your presence. We thank you that you came for people like all of us, wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.